starting a new study this week on the book of Daniel. And so you might ask yourself the question, why the book of Daniel? So let me just address that right off the bat. Why Daniel? I'm pretty confident I could make a a case for any book of the Bible. But for Daniel, at this point in time, for us as a church, here's some of what I'm thinking. Um, We need to be reminded that God is in control. We watch international politics. We watch countries at war. We live in the midst of a country that oftentimes it can feel like things are spinning out of control. And we need to be reminded that God is in control. And the book of Daniel is going to remind us of that throughout its chapters. In the early chapters, we're going to see these examples of Daniel's life, of how we can see that even in the midst of difficult times, God is still in control of Daniel's life. As you get to later sections of the book, you'll see that God is the king of kings. He's going to work all things out to his glory, even in the end of time. Daniel also gives us examples of how to stand up for God in the midst of a culture um, that, that he was living in, of, in this ancient town of Babylon. For you and I, as we live in the midst of our culture, we can all see that there are times at which it seems that the people around us are opposed to the things of God. And Daniel lived at such a time. And he gives us examples of what it looks like to stand up for our faith in the midst of a people that are opposed to the things of God. And so there's some famous stories in the book, right? Daniel in the lion's den. That's when the, the king said, you're not allowed to pray. And Daniel said, I will pray. And he was thrown in the, Daniel, in the lion's den. You have Daniel's friends were told that they must bow down to a false idol. And they say, we will not bow down to a false idol. And they're thrown into a fiery furnace. And what we're going to look at today is Daniel and his friends are told that they must eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. And they say no. And so we can see what it looks like to stand up for our faith in the midst of a culture that is opposed to God. We can also see, though, that we can be faithful and fruitful right where God has planted us. Sometimes we as Christians can be quick to complain about how things around us aren't how we want them to be. How our authorities don't love and honor God like we want them to. In the book of Daniel, in the very first verses we're going to read here, Daniel's town is invaded by a foreign king who hates the God of Israel. And David is ripped, or David, Daniel is ripped out of his family unit and taken to live as a prisoner of war in a foreign land. If he has things to complain about, he does above all of any of us. But that's not what we see in the book of Daniel. We see a humble and respectful individual who found a way to honor God and win the approval and and the blessing of the authorities above him, even in the midst of a, a culture and a kingdom that was very opposed to God. So Daniel can show us how to bloom right where we're planted, even if where we're planted is amidst people that don't respect and honor God. And what you'll see is Daniel, through his faithfulness and his humility and respectfulness of how he engages that king and that kingdom in Babylon, he even leads the king to have a faith in God. And so there's a lot that we need to learn from Daniel, so we're going to work our way through the book of Daniel. Before we start, just right in verse 1, let me give you just a little more context. The year is 605 B.C. 605 years before Jesus is born, this is what was happening in the Middle East. You had uh, a few years before 605 B.C., you had a kingdom of Israel which was powerful, they were a really powerful and expansive kingdom blessed by God because at that there was a window of time in which they were honoring God they were keeping his law they weren't bowing down to the false gods around them 
But over time, they took their eyes off of God and his ways, and they started following the ways of all the other kingdoms around them. They started worshiping false gods. They started having a lot of immorality in their nation. So God sent them prophets. And the prophet said, if you don't follow my way, then I'm going to discipline you. And they ignored it. He sent another prophet. If you don't turn and go my way, I'm going to discipline you. And they ignored that prophet until finally we get to 605 BC and Daniel chapter 1 opens with God's discipline on display. So we have the words for you on the screen there. It's also found in the Bibles in your pew and you can even find it on your phone. But Daniel chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, the story starts this way. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. What I want you to notice out of those verses are three little words. They're what popped out to me when I read it. The Lord gave. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. That sort of makes you stop and scratch your head. The Lord gave them into the hands of wicked king Nebuchadnezzar. What you're going to see from the very first verses throughout the book of Daniel is that God is in control. God is in control. didn't catch him by surprise that Nebuchadnezzar's army surrounded the city and besieged it. God is in control. I like to imagine Daniel and his family gathered up together in their home inside Jerusalem, this walled city that could never fall. And outside they look and they see the armies of Babylon surrounding them. And the Daniel and his family are praying together. They're on their knees. They're saying, God, why? Why have you allowed this, this God, this king who, who hates you, who is, who is trying to kill your people? Why are you allowing him to besiege the city? Why are you allowing victory to someone who does not honor you? So we'll pause in the story and ask ourselves the question. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt besieged? Have you ever felt like all around you is opposition? You are surrounded with opposition and you just want to say to God, why? Where are you? Why are you allowing this to happen in my life? Now, most of the time when you and I ask that question of God, we should just be prepared for the fact that we probably won't get an answer. It doesn't mean you shouldn't ask the question. I mean... Jesus on the cross says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's no problem asking God questions of why. It's just we need to be prepared for the fact that he often doesn't give us answers. But when we look to scripture, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can kind of see the why question answered as we look at the story of the nation of Israel. God is disciplining his people. God has told them, if you don't change your ways, then I will discipline you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says, God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. So as we're reading the story, we're trying to understand its its truth for us today. I do want to speak to this question. You might be thinking, oh, then if I'm surrounded with opposition, I feel besieged. That must be God disciplining me. I must have done something wrong. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the case. I think it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to answer the question of why is this opposition coming into my life? 
And quite honestly, I'm a bit skeptical of anyone who steps into my life and tells me the purpose for the opposition. They say, oh, that's, that's Satan attacking you. Okay, but can you explain to me why it's not God disciplining me or the fruit of my own sinful, selfish actions or someone else plot to, to destroy my life, right? Like, could you please explain to me how you came to that decision? Because I think it's a very, very difficult decision to come to of why this is coming into my life. And I don't really think the answer to the question matters. So listen to me. If it's an attack of Satan, what should I do? I should trust in God and obey him. If it's an attack from somebody else, what should I do? I should trust in God and obey him. If it's the fruit of my own selfish sinfulness, what should I do? Trust in God and obey him. If it's God's discipline on my life, what should I do? Trust in him and obey him. And so I think sometimes it can be a distraction to try and figure that question out. Maybe God is up in heaven saying, listen, listen, I'm not going to answer for you why or where this is coming from. But here's the question I want you to answer is how are you going to respond? How are you going to respond? Whether this is a gift from God, whether this is an attack from Satan, how are you going to respond? How will you respond? God gave the king of Judah into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And God is going to give you some things in your life that you don't like. God is going to give you uh, sickness, perhaps. He's going to give you suffering, perhaps. He's going to give you pain, confusion, frustration, death. When these things come into your life, and they will, it doesn't mean that God isn't in control. God is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. He's the king of kings. It doesn't mean he's not in control. We're trying to see how will we respond to the gifts that he gives us. So if we continue through the story, we'll see how Daniel responds. In verse 3, where we left off. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility... Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that the king king drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them, gave, gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So what we're seeing here is Nebuchadnezzar's you know, evil scheme to take over the world, right? Like any other king in history, he has set out to conquer the empires around him. And here's his strategy. When I take over a city or a country, I will take the cream of the crop. I will go in and take the, the youths of the nobility of the king's family of royal priest or the royal family. And I will bring them back to, to my palace. And they're fluent in that language. And they understand the customs and the culture, the people that I just took over. So now I need to indoctrinate them from a young age into the ways of the Babylonians, into the language of the Babylonians, and the literature of the Babylonians, and the religion of the Babylonians. And so as Nebuchadnezzar works out his plan, we get to follow the storyline of four of these youths. We believe them to be in their teenage years, from what historians tell us. So we'll assume that Daniel and his friends are around the age of 15 years. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Now it used to be that your names had meaning. 
and maybe you named your kid and, and it, with meaning. Um, we didn't. Um, people say, why'd you name Henry Henry? I said, because I like the name. It sounds nice. Um, however, I understand that my parents named me Matthew for a reason, because I've heard my dad preach that countless of times from sermons. Matthew means gift of God. What I never really pieced together was my middle name is Caleb, and in Hebrew, Caleb means dog. <laughs> so I'm not, I got to put those two things together. Um, he mainly preached the first name. Um, Daniel's name. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah means God is gracious. Mishael means who is like God. And Azariah means God helps. So you could line up these four boys and you could preach a gospel sermon. You could say Daniel. Daniel's name means God is judge. And you and I stand before the judge of heaven and earth. And we have sinned. We've sinned. And so we stand before the judge condemned in our sin. And yet Jesus is sent down to earth in the story of the gospel, isn't he? Why? Because God is gracious. Hananiah. Hananiah, God is gracious. And so he sent his son to take the judgment that we deserve and died our death on the cross so that we wouldn't have to live. And then uh, Mishael says, oh, there is who is like God. He is a judge, and yet he is gracious. Who is like this God? And the answer is, there is no other God like him. You study all the religions of the world, and you know what you're going to find? You're going to find a system of religion that says, if you do this, then God will do this. And if you want the pleasure of the God, then you must do this. And Christianity is, the God of Christianity is the only one who flips that whole thing on its head and says, you know what? God is gracious to you, and you can't earn his favor. But he sent his son who died for you, and he extends you his grace and his forgiveness, and you haven't even done a thing to deserve it. Who is like God? No one. And then uh, Azariah finishes out the gospel message by saying, and God helps. And we live by his power. God helps us. And so that's a, a beautiful gospel presentation right embedded in their names. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I can't have that in the king's court. And so Daniel, you will be Belteshazzar. Hananiah, you will be Shadrach. Mishael, you will be Meshach. And Azariah, you will be Abednego. But who wins in the end here? Who wins in the end? You can rob them from their families. You can indoctrinate them from a young age. You can change their language. You can change their culture. You can change their education. You can even try to change their diet. But these four youths at the end of the book still have a robust faith in the one God. Ever since 1972... Daniel has been on the top 15 names for boys. And I can't find Belteshazzar in any of the lists. The book isn't named Dan or Belteshazzar, is it? It's named Daniel. Because their faith survived all of that was thrown at them. So how does Daniel respond? God gives Daniel a really difficult gift, doesn't he? He gives Daniel the gift of being ripped from his family transported to a foreign land to be indoctrinated by a foreign king how will daniel respond verse 8 daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank daniel resolved 
He committed. He set his heart. He made up his mind not to to defile himself, not to let anything about this experience. And maybe he set his heart uh, when the soldiers came and ripped him from his family. Maybe it was in that long travel from Jerusalem to Babylon. But somewhere along the way, Daniel set his mind and he said, I will not be defiled. I will not dishonor my God. Have you have you done that? Have you stopped and sort of set your mind and said, you know what, there are certain things that I will do as a Christian and certain things I won't do as a Christian. Have you set up your boundaries as it relates to alcohol? Have you, have you set up boundaries for yourself as it relates to Ill- illegal substances? If you're single, have you, set, have you made up your mind about what boundaries you have in physical relationships as you date? If you're married, have you set up boundaries? Have you made up your mind already on what the boundaries should be with you and people of the opposite sex? Have you resolved in your heart what you would say if someone asked you about your faith? Have you already thought through and made up your mind and set your heart on how you would respond if somebody asked you to do something unethical? If someone asked you to to violate your conscience or disobey or dishonor God? Because Daniel had resolved. He had set his heart and made up his mind. Now we wonder why the food? Why the food and the wine? And there's a lot of debate around this question. So you read all these historians and Bible scholars, and and they all agree. We don't really understand why. So some people think it could be the kosher food laws, right? The Bible's full of what you can eat and can't eat in the Old Testament. Where that doesn't seem to make sense is that wine is kosher. And so we don't understand why he would resist the food and the wine whenever, no matter... Wine is kosher. So we're confused by that. Some people think, well, maybe this food and the wine was offered to idols. And Daniel's saying, well, I'm not going to eat or drink anything that's been processed by the idol. Well, we're going to see he agrees to eat vegetables um, for 10 days. And probably all the food passed through the same process. So some people think that it's maybe it's just he had to draw the line somewhere. He said, you know what? They're not going to flex on the names. There's no way we're going to get around that one. And we can't opt out of this education program. That's, that's not going to work. But you know what? I think we could retain some of our identity as, as children of God if we could push back a little bit on the diet. I bet that's where we could put a stake in the ground. But for whatever the reason, Daniel had resolved in his, in his heart that he would not defile himself with the food and the wine. And he made that decision probably at the age of like 15 years old. How does a young man at the age of 15 years old have the courage, the strength of character, the strength of faith to stand up to a king? He is a prisoner of war in the king's court, and he has the courage and the faith and the character to stand up. I can't help but think he must have had a strong network of people investing in him from the age of one up until the age of 15 to produce the level of character and faith that he's able to stand on as he stands in the king's court. We have wonderful young men and women in this church, young people who are or will be in difficult situations. Where people who are their authorities in school or in life are telling them they have to do this. There's a social peer pressure around them. Well, you have to say this. You have to believe this. You have to do that. Sometimes we say to ourselves, oh, I'm really concerned for the youth of this generation. So what we really need to ask ourselves is, okay, concern is good. 
What are you willing to do to develop young people so that they can be Daniels? What are you willing to do to invest your time or your talents or your treasure? Are you willing to invest your prayer time? Are you willing to invest your financial resources? Are you willing to invest your Sunday evening? Northgate Church is committed to it. Ben Miller is committed to it. A team, uh, his youth, his youth team is committed to it. But are, are you committed to it? The, youth, the church just invested a bunch of money to remodel the youth room downstairs so that teenagers and college students and young adults can gather in a room and have a space where relationships can happen. But listen, walls and rooms don't disciple people. Walls and rooms don't build character and they don't build faith. People do that as they make sacrifices in their time and in their treasure and in their talents, in their prayer life to make these Daniels a reality in our world today. So we need to be people who are actively involved in trying to create this kind of fruit in our world and in our church family. How did Daniel respond to the gift of exile into Babylon? He made up his mind to honor God. Now I want to pause just for a second and say, when I was preparing this, I felt these these feelings of of guilt and shame because I think back in my memory and be like, oh man, I didn't resolve in my heart in that memory and I should have said something there and I didn't. I should have stood up in that situation. Oh, if I, I just wish I could go back in time and change this. I wish I could have done that differently. And if you're having those kind of memories like I've had, then you just need to hear Hananiah's voice in your ears saying, God is gracious. God is gracious. God is forgiving. He floods you in his grace. Don't be plagued with guilt and shame. Azariah would tell you, God is here to help you. And what you have before you today and this week and in the coming years are countless opportunities to be a wonderful witness for Jesus. But you might need to resolve in your heart today how you might respond when that moment comes for you. We'll continue on through the, the story. We, wanna, uh, we have a little bit more ground to cover here. So therefore, he, Daniel, asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So his authority is saying like, I like you, Daniel. But I don't know that I'm willing to risk my head getting chopped off just so you can, uh, you know, opt out of the king's food. So Daniel said to the steward from whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servant according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. Now I love this part of the story. We're short on time, so we'll just hit the highlights, but you should really pay attention. Teenagers, there are moments when you do not like the decisions that your parents make. Workers, there are moments where you don't like the decision your authority, your supervisor makes. There are all of us situations where there is authority figures who make decisions that affect us and we don't like them. How should we respond? Daniel gives us a really good examples. Before you jump to, that's not fair. I'm so angry. I'm going to demand my rights. 
What does Daniel do? He asks. He just simply asks. How often do we skip that step? Just to humble ourselves, walk before the authority, and just ask a question. He wasn't belligerent. He wasn't difficult. He went along with the name change. He did his studies. He learned the languages. He learned the literature. He was compliant. We assume he must have developed a good reputation so that as he walked before the authority, he was able to, in humility and respect, make a request. That simple, that simple application could just do wonders for all of us. And then if you noticed in that passage, it also said these words again, and God gave. We highlighted that sometimes God's gifts are painful, but oftentimes God's gifts are very good. God gave him compassion and favor in the eyes of his authority so that he says back to him, okay, I like you, but I'm not willing to chop off my head. And so what does Daniel do? Take note of this as well. Daniel says, okay, okay, I hear you. I'm listening. I'm not just demanding what I want. I'm actually listening to what you say in response. I have a compromise. I have a compromise. Maybe we could just try this. Ten days. And then you be the judge. You see how humble and respectful, how much trust he has in God to dictate the situation. And so in that level of humility and trust and respect, he's able to say, let's just try it. And I just wish we would resist the opposite illustration that is at play in our lives all day, every day of the opposite of this. Demanding, belligerence, being difficult, insisting on our own way, being disrespectful, and quite frankly, often just mean when we don't have situations in our work or in our lives that we think it should be. There's a lot we have to learn from Daniel about humility, respect, courage, and strength. So the story continues. At the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance than the, and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Did you hear it again in that passage? This was the third time. God gave Daniel a gift. The first gift he gave him was the gift of suffering and pain as he was ripped from his family. The second gift God gave him was favor and compassion in the eyes of his authority. And then the third gift he gave him was his ability to have, liter- to have wisdom and understanding and for David visions and dreams. We praise God in the bad times. We praise God in the good times. At this end, as we, as we finish the passage, it's easy to misapply this passage. So here's what we can't do, okay? Here's a bad application. Daniel trusted God and obeyed God and tried to honor God. And when he did that, he had success and health. If I trust in God and obey God and seek to honor him, then I will have success and health. That's a bad application. Why? Well, we can just see the Bible play out as well as much of church history and your life and in my life that that is not always the case. God can do that 
And praise God when he does. But you know what God can also do? As you trust in him and walk with him, you may not get increased health. You might get worse health. And you know what? As you honor God in your workplace, you could very well get fired. You may not end up with health and wealth and prosperity as you trust in God and obey him and honor him in your life. Daniel did, and you may, and we will praise God for those stories, and those stories will inspire us. But I can't let you leave here today with that kind of application in your mind. What I want you to realize is the gifts God gives you are going to be different than the gifts God gives Daniel. And your life might look different than Daniel's. The question for us today is how are you going to respond to the gifts that God gives you? Before we leave, we should just shift our attention from Daniel to a man who lived about 605 years after Daniel. And that's the person of Jesus. Jesus, interestingly, was also sent to live in a foreign land and bear witness to the one true God. He found favor with God and man. He, in his youth, amazed people with his wisdom and understanding in the temple. And interestingly enough, Jesus was tempted by Satan to defile himself with food as he was tempted in the wilderness. Jesus had some fame and success in his story, but then he ended his life in his mid-30s with unjust persecution, torture, pain, suffering, humiliation, and finally death on a cross. How did Jesus respond to these gifts? God gave him these gifts. Well, as Jesus was hanging on the cross... Enduring suffering and humiliation. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But his last words were, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so Jesus models for us even more than Daniel, that as we receive the gifts that God gives us, we maintain a faith and obedience, surrendering ourselves to God in his ways. I can't promise health and wealth and success like Daniel. Jesus said in John 16, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So, so Jesus doesn't just die on the cross, does he? Three days later, he raises from the dead. And you know what gift he gives us? He gives us the gift of forgiveness of sins. He gives us the gift that we too can rise from the dead, that we can live with him. Jesus' gift to us is his life. Jesus' gift to us is the Holy Spirit that lives within us. Jesus' gift to us is the church that is all around us. Jesus with us, Holy Spirit in us, the church all around us. What are you doing with the gifts that God is giving you? And I understand that maybe God is giving you gifts that are painful and difficult. But he has also given you himself to walk with you, to fill you to strengthen you with your brothers and sisters in Christ. How will you respond to the gifts that God is giving you?